welcome back everyone it's friday and uh, we're back with the uh, a grave announcement um i've been thinking over the website for a long time um we've been an independent outlet not very many views of course there's a there's very few opportunities to get together anymore so um i i thought about things i could do to energize the website but ultimately it all leads to one path which was that I need to shut it down. Um, it's, I have to leave the website and I'm, I decided to resign. Um, I thought this over for the last several weeks. It's very hard for me to even talk right now through the frustration and pain and the heartache that I know I'm putting on everyone, our 10 readers, especially. Um, I know that uh, it's a very significant announcement to just uh, throw it out here. Like it's just a blase topic at the beginning, the head of the show, uh, especially a show on Stop Making Sense, one of the great movies. So. And then, then something happened. I logged on to YouTube. I saw that one David Lynch also had an announcement. I waited days. Um, I thought, what could this possibly be? What could he go on his YouTube to announce new Twin Peaks? Nay! Um, he was announcing that he was canceling his weather program only for him to dial it back and say that his announcement was due to the response, he's not going to. So um, eventually I also got to a point based exclusively on David Lynch's video where I decided we're not going to cancel the website. Um, we're going to keep it online for at least one more year. Um, and if David Lynch at some point cancels the weather program, I think the site goes with it. But uh as for today, I think we're up and running. I'm, I'm very happy that you came to this conclusion as well. Uh, you know, the, the site obviously owes a lot to, to David Lynch. You've uh, named it after him in, in so many ways. So it's only appropriate that uh, he would also be the one to save our site here as well. Uh, Pavlos here, who's a guest with us, and I, you know, we, we protested as well, you know, outside of that, but uh, I'm glad well, that it was just well, contributions that solely saved things. Um, I actually uh, came here, I brought a, I'm, I'm very uh, shocked right now because I came here, brought a bid uh, for the site, you know, wanted to turn it to, to a video game site. Um, <laughs> so this is really, this is really a bummer, but uh, okay. Congrats uh, on that decision, I guess. I think it's just a catalyst to talk about what a struggle it's been to even like be in the industry within the last year. Uh, because like what I did with movie screenings was like one of my most connective act activities, like outside recovery and um, talking about uh, other things I care about with friends who, who you don't really get to meet up with anymore. Uh, I think like going to the screenings, seeing like our Seattle film critic friends, um, those were keeping me connected in significant ways and gave me like a sense of community and like something to look forward to at each screening. Cause I like to write experientially anyway. Um, so my breakdown the last two months has been that um, I can only write about me secluded with my laptop. Uh, so I definitely have hit like a rut in writing where I'm like, do I even want to do this anymore? But uh, thanks to David Lynch, I think we have to persevere because I think it really means something. Um, I think it means yeah. something to everyone who has something up on the site that, that we continue to host. We've just passed 700 articles up. We can't just let that go because uh, we're in a rough patch socially. Certainly. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's uh, 
a universal sentiment across the industry, like you said as well. Everyone's hurting a little bit, and the drive is definitely down. Um, you know, and, and also just like you know, that compounded with you know early January drought. You know, yes. and you're coming off like the the holidays and such and trying to find that motivation again it's always tough but you know it's it's going to be there and ultimately uh you know the site is a, is a form of expression for us as well as you know the podcast here um and uh, you know i hope that we can continue to maintain it even through the the rough patches uh if, if solely for that avenue you know with which to explore things much that's, like that's, much like David Lynch, I hope everyone's <laughs> wearing sunglasses because the future is going to be bright. <laughs> yeah, I forgot mine, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, uh, I totally you don't need them understand. right now. You, you need them oh. for the future. Right now, it's really dim. For the future. You, yeah, it's everything's true, yeah. really yeah. grim right now. You don't need to uh, prepare at all. <laughs> okay, okay, just when the light is, when, when I see the light. Yeah, um, give, it, the light, give yeah. it like eight months, then you could go grab a pair of sunglasses. I mean, you're fine for now, but. Uh, Okay. Okay. Well, all right. I'll uh, I'll fetch some uh, for for the time when it happens. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. I mean, I totally. Uh, um, I mean, we we talked about this, and uh, I think it's very understandable the sentiment. Uh, and um, you know, like the considering how much you wrote last year, um, the many reviews, the <laughs> I think about ninety uh, pieces or so. <laughs> it was the machine, the, you know, yeah. the review machine there. The just. Uh, you know the the daily business of like reviewing all these films that uh, all these screeners that of which like you know a a fragment will like is worthwhile ultimately will stick with you and only a fragment of which you would have watched otherwise like it's true you know, there's a lot of them and, i wouldn't and uh, i'd say like a yeah. quarter of them i would watch on by my own volition right right and i mean this it is of course like it is um, worth it for the rare discovery sometimes that you didn't expect, of course, but by and large, it's obviously, you know, the mo motivator of like, you know, I'm, I'm maybe writing about something that uh, don't really don't really care about too much. And it's like, it's not, this is not going to really make a dent in anything and whatever, but it it's a, uh, you know, by, by having sort of uh, the critic uh, circles that I'm in, and seeing what they've wrote, you know, talking about those films, going to see them together to, uh, to begin with and stuff. Uh, even even the, um, you know, the 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 daily uh, grind there can, you know, that that's what makes it makes it fun. And um, if that falls away, or like falls away, then then you're just left with I don't know. Uh, can't even name you. Can't even name you a film that's like, uh, yeah like you know the six out of tens or whatever the five and sixes uh... yeah i i think there i think that's most of them too and like i try to just get to the good stuff of course and stuff people rave about but in a year like last year uh i think we're forced into a corner where we have to rave about things that aren't always um the the highlight <laughs> of cinema uh through the whole history of cinema you go through uh every movie that's ever been released and uh maybe uh netflix and hulu release weren't the most meaningful thing of all time but you have to do something right well uh yeah i mean uh, i totally and i totally get the obviously the writing uh rut that one can be in also after the holidays i've also experienced that not even with regard to side stuff which, which i also want to go get back to maybe more, more on that uh, mm -hmm. later when we talk about our film or the week um, but uh yeah, yeah i think uh, so, totally. 
despite that, there's like a there's a big come down anyway at the end of the year. I just have to acknowledge that David's put on the sunglasses. I can't <laughs> I can't take not acknowledging it anymore. I can only see him when he talks, so I haven't seen that yet. Oh, my bad. I'm, well, let me go ahead and talk for a little bit. Oh, so you can see that I uh, I found some sunglasses and uh, took Lynch's advice and uh, went ahead and uh, put them on for our, our bright future. Because, you know, even though 2020 had its uh, dark spots and its releases, you know, I know I, I certainly reviewed a couple of uh, clunkers there. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to to what we've got uh, coming in, in 2021 here and beyond. Uh I'm hoping I'm I'm predicting that we'll have a, a brighter future and that the theaters will mm-hmm. open again by the end of the year. I think I think we can look forward to that this this year. Maybe not as soon as we'd like, but still we'll have that communal experience again before we know it. And then we can you know there there'll be lots of think pieces in ten years about you know the strange time of the coronavirus in, in theaters. Like everyone's gonna write their retrospectives on this this dark time, and it'll be odd. I think despite all that, um, I think I, I think we're all grateful for David bringing his sunglasses on top of regular glasses. Yeah, yeah. I, I screenshot of that. I screenshot of that and that's going to keep, keep me going, I think. Whenever I'm down, I will just uh, look at that. Uh, so, so, look, you guys have to understand that I'm I'm literally blind without glasses. I, I cannot see. And since uh, I can't af- afford to get any kind of like tinting glasses, I just have to you know go with the social faux pas of wearing sunglasses over my glasses uh as awkward uh, as that seems yeah. it has a chain on it yeah it this, chain. this pair we this pair had a chain yeah, thank you yeah <laughs> it, it should be chain. mentioned <laughs> it, it should be sure. mentioned that there is a chain drooping down from both the, sides the, the lack of visual uh here is really not communicating the, the the inherent silliness of these sunglasses that i happen to grab off of this desk that i'm sitting at uh they're not mine so uh, i think that should be noted that these are my uh fiance's glasses uh that she doesn't really wear they're just kind of stuck on here but um but they yeah, are important uh, yeah the, the chain is the chain is for street fights right you can just look it up <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's ready to go in case you ever get into a tumble in the dark alley i think like despite all the doldrums of a release schedule going into january and like the big come down of award season and then uh, a pit of nothingness uh i think we have a i think we have a great show anyway because we have david's documentary discourse we have uh, uh pavlos here who's going to share something on streaming with us and uh, we have a Sundance movie. We have Sundance coverage for a new Sono film. And Stop Making Sense. So uh, should we begin with David? Yeah, uh, I'm actually I'm very excited this week. Uh, particularly excited to have Pavlos back on the show. It's been a long time. I think this is only your yeah. second spot. But, but um... the, hey, the connection is Lynch. You know, the first time I came on, it was for uh, for the straight story. And uh, yeah. now it's about Lynch saving the website. So... And uh, the Breakfast Club was kind of a, a Lynchian event. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. Gary. How how Holy did I forget the most legendary yeah. episode? Sorry. We all sat at a very long table, <laughs> a, a long ways <laughs> from each other. So that's an interesting podcast. Uh, hard to record that way, but uh, <laughs> we did it. But yeah. yes, uh, back for the second segment of uh, David's documentary discourse. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame you weren't here last week, Pavlos, where uh, I discussed right. uh, the fatherland. Uh, and <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I did. I did promise Calvin this week that I that I would not bring up uh, the Nazi regime and, and Hitler again, despite <laughs> the the many documentaries available to me. I believe I asked you to, and you said no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was something like that. I, I I said I would do it less frequently, but then. 
uh pavlos had also asked me uh, to, to yeah, encourage you more yeah in fact so uh, i'm here again with another hitler spotlight <laughs> this time i watched a documentary from 2017 called hitler's hollywood <laughs> right. your two major interests combined yeah this is actually the uh, the second documentary I've watched on uh, the German film industry during the, the Third Reich. Uh, this one was from a director named uh, Rudiger Schuschland, which I probably didn't pronounce correctly. But yeah, uh, I don't even know what that's supposed to be uh, correct. Like what the correct would be the pronunciation would be because I didn't, didn't catch that. Uh, Rudiger is the first name. What's the second name? Schuschland. You you keep talking. Okay, okay. I'm going <laughs> to assume I'm going to assume it's correct. I just tried to spit it out as fast as possible so you couldn't correct me. Uh, but uh, he, uh, I, I was interested in the film because he directed a film prior to that called uh, "From Caligari to Hitler" about the films during the Weimar Republic, which uh, uh, I have a lot of interest in. Uh, and so I was interested to see this one, particularly after another film from a couple years prior on the same uh, period called "Forbidden Films," which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. This one, however, Hitler's Hollywood, uh, I felt mm -hmm. missed a lot of the major points that the the other documentary I'd watched really hit on and made kind of important in that it's not very critical of a lot of the, the films there. And uh, it's mostly like a showcase for a lot of it, uh, leaning sometimes into kind of glamorizing the films of, of the uh, Nazi propaganda machine which is very dangerous. Um, it, it takes a lot of time early on arguing for the sake that these were lots of lavish films and they're kind of, you know, transportive. They were meant to be these, you know, Hollywood-esque, you know, big like musicals and such and comedies and adventure films and such that were distractions for the, the German people with, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, approval of uh, Goebbels and uh, the whole propaganda machine going in there. But it, it doesn't really do enough, I think, to contextualize a lot of those films and the potential, you know, layer of indoctrination it has uh, underneath that, you know, was, could be dangerous, even in some of the films that were largely, you know, fluff and uh, didn't have, you know, the, the inherent messages underneath. Uh, it's, it's still present in those films, you know, and you can see from even the small amounts of footage they show and like ignoring that and continue and, and glorifying them as these kind of lost films that are lost in the discussion of, you know, all of the propaganda films as well, I think uh, is, is a dangerous way to, you know, try and uh, highlight this overlooked period of, of film history. Um, you know, because it doesn't contextualize them properly. It still goes over some of the more uh, infamous ones and it does, you know, do its job in condemning them, but it doesn't open a conversation about them like I found the other uh, documentary to do. And so I, I think uh, ultimately it has the, the negative effect of, you know, continuing to, to fetishize this era of history, which has been, you know, uh, closed off from, from the public, so to speak, and makes them, you know, objects of desire. Mm-hmm. That all makes sense. Um, I see how it's hitting uh, several of your interests here. It too bad it doesn't follow through and give you what yeah. you need. There. It's so. You know... Did you watch the first? Uh, sorry. Oh, uh, no, go ahead. Did you watch the first yeah, film? Because uh, you said uh, from Caligari to Hitler, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That so, that yeah. one's been on my radar for a while, but I haven't mm -hmm. found it to to stream yet or to rent anywhere. I've I've but I've known about it for a long time, and it's interested me because I I do have a yeah. great interest in that particular well, period. You know that's the uh, you know the fam the title to the famous uh, study from uh, Siegfried uh, Krakauer, who is yeah. uh, 
one of the famous uh, film, uh, early film theoreticians, term film theoretician, and wrote about other stuff, also wrote fictional stuff. But uh, yeah, it's his, it's, it's his uh, study of early uh, German film, you know, start, starting with the um, archaic era, as, as he calls it, and right up to um, Hitler, like, and, and the Nazi regime, and uh, the films made there, and uh, makes sort of a, you know, it's a study about like, film propaganda and the psycho psychological um, element of, of film and uh, so that's I assume he it's kind of a an adaptation quote-unquote of that of those findings of that Krakauer study I'm, I'm assuming so they they reference the the Krakauer study in the uh, Hitler's Hollywood uh, documentary mm -hmm. which kind of like it was a light bulb then I'm like oh that's where the the name comes from and such uh, right. and and I imagine it's probably you know m more interesting uh, as a documentary um, because mm -hmm. it's going to be like less controversial to sort through. You could talk about the films in a more historical and glowing context without, you know, the need to, uh, you know, kind of like both sides of it there and, you know, try and suss out their significance and, and history as much. You know, it's yeah. like the, the films from the, the Weimar period are, are greatly lauded and, you know, recorded with good reason. You've got, you know, the films of uh, Fritz Lang and you've got, you know, the, the Murnau films and such that helped uh, define the period, you know, of course, and Caligari is in the name, one of the, the flagship films of the German Expressionist period. And, right. and so I, I'm, I'm still interested in seeing that one, but I'm more dubious now having seen this, knowing that uh, it just wasn't as well a produced documentary. Like even just as a, like if you take all of the, you know, criticism out of it in terms of needing to contextualize the film more, uh, you mm -hmm. know, it didn't, it didn't give me a great perspective on all the films necessarily. It was, it was mostly like a big showcase of, hey, look at all the films from the, you know, the Nazi period and such. Here's, you know, a bunch of them. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay. Uh, I, I even watched one of them, which had been on my radar e even prior to this, which was uh, Munchausen. Uh, it was uh, made in celebration of uh, Ufa's 25 years. Um, it was the biggest German film producer at the time. And that uh, was pretty underwhelming, actually. I watched that last night, and it is purportedly it was supposed to be kind of like inspired by the Wizard of Oz with its kind of technicolor grandeur and sense of whimsy <laughs> and fantasy. And it's just like really cheap looking and like <laughs> not not all that entertaining and interesting and you know it's kind of uh dull in places I'm like oh i mean this is the, mm -hmm. the supposed you know arm of the 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 german film industry and you know all its resources here Ugh. <laughs> so much for the master yeah. race i guess oh god <laughs> jeez well <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i mean i think i think that um there's really very few films from the nazi uh era which uh you know obviously riefenstahl uh, is uh is kind of the big one where it's like this is despite the you know the political um dimension to it there's uh it is sort of a an important document and also like both uh, like historically and aesthetically uh sort of uh, worth uh, examining but there's really very few of these examples for the nazi regime and i think that just comes from um you know, even though uh, obviously the propaganda uh, is often, you know, the, the connection between propaganda and film, just like propaganda and sound, you know, it's often, it's, it's very important. Um, I, I don't think that comes with a, um, that necessarily comes with a sense of sort of sound aesthetic, like sound in the sense of sort of sophisticated aesthetics, more 
it's more it's the difference between that and effective aesthetics you know the effective for the propaganda but that doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily you know aesthetically um <laughs> worthwhile and so i think uh yeah so the nazi film industry you know just uh those, those different priorities <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's, be, so. it's just interesting to see how uh ineffective it could be in, in some places or how you know like the, the the legacy of them kind of shrouded in mystery being held from the public and such except for you know certain mm -hmm. occasions uh and, and how that kind of mystifies them a bit more and gives them a, a grandeur that just isn't there if, if you actually watch some of these uh you know uh, this is the first and one to I've be seen. fair the they're they're thoroughly like they're thoroughly demystified here for like many decades it's not like so yeah. maybe like an impression i could see the impression being like you know um in the us maybe i could, I could see that uh because also you know just obviously lack of uh lack of um you know information or you know being being sort of versed in the subject always you know or the opposite let's say the opposite being versed in the subject always like demystifies it automatically right. so uh, well, I, I should say, uh, in in contrast, then to the other documentary which I'd watched some months back, which mm -hmm. was called uh, Forbidden Films from 2014, which tackles the same mm, subject, yeah. it uh, makes that kind of the focal point of the piece there. And that you know, should these films be available? Are they still dangerous today? What kind of right. impact do they have on people? And there's a whole section of the film where they like have these you know special screenings with like uh, various students and people you know who are interested, and they have a whole like a conversation afterwards, like, how did this movie make you feel? You know, do you think it's something that should be released to the public? You know, what kind of impact did it have on you? They also take uh, these various uh, interviews from former like neo-Nazis and, and their opinions on the film and how it influenced them and such. And mm -hmm. the film, you know, doesn't take a stance one way or the other necessarily. And it really allows that question to kind of come forth. Like, is it more dangerous to, you know, keep these films barred and then create a kind of fascistic desire for them or you know should we release yeah. them you know freely and allow people to do with them what they will and make judgments for themselves and i think right. it's a right. the, the in, an interesting question that's thoroughly explored there that is just entirely ignored in this uh other film and just you know is really just like a, a showcase and almost you know like it glamorizes a lot of them and makes them seem more alluring you know and enticing than they might you know actually be you know, it, Munchausen was the only one I, I watched, uh, you know, I, I've seen from there, but I was, I was so thoroughly unimpressed with it. <laughs> right. Even, even um, in it, though, mm. there there is, you can see, like, those hints of um, propaganda and, you know, the ideas that are that kind of just there inherently on the surface. There is, of course, like, this thread of imperialism, you know, with this kind of globetrotting antics and, you know, mm. the, mm -hmm. these these very poor depictions of other other countries and stuff like uh, Turkey and stuff gets, gets really like a, a rough depiction and such. There's even a, like there was really a uncomfortable crack about like this idea of conquering countries and they even kind of wink about Poland at one point. And it was it was really kind of like it gave me this yeah. uh, these chills. I was like, oh, that's that's Oof. horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe recommend um, what was it? Forbidden films from Forbidden films. Yeah, that one. Yeah, uh, that sounds really. That one sounds really interesting. Even back then, when you recommended it to me, I, I watch listed it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would I would highly recommend that to anyone who's interested in in learning about these uh, films produced in the you know Nazi age, not just the 
you know, big name propagandist films, but also, you know, the kind of uh, small ones, the entertainment driven ones that still had a level of influence on the public and reflected mm -hmm. what, you know, the, uh, the the propaganda arm, you know, wanted uh, the public to feel and think and see. <clears throat> And and I have a clear stance personally for like uh, on that question. Though I'm not saying that's that's the one to have or whatever. Like I don't think it's clear cut either way. But that's my my take is like you know um, that they should be made available, but uh, obviously heavily edited and com commentate like commented uh, and like in, in proper like historical editions. Just like obviously uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf was uh, a couple of years ago. You know finally. Um, was made made uh, uh it was allowed to like reprint it and um like make um make proper historical editions of it that you know mm -hmm. you could just you could just buy um before that it was like you would have to get it like from um the uh from antiquari uh, antiquariats is that a <laughs> is that I, I how you a call it like shops? yeah I, yeah i have, I have shops, a question but... about that that actually kind of sparks another interesting conversation do you know where the money goes for people who buy the the book? What do you mean, where the money like, goes? Yeah, like because I think there's an ethical question in terms of monetizing these these dangerous and propagandistic works. You know, like I think that's a whole other faction of of the conversation that we'd want to have in terms of bringing these to the public. Like, how mm -hmm. uh, what's what's the ethical you know measure here and you know, not just uh, producing these, but distributing these films and making money off of, you know, dangerous propaganda. I mean, no, I mean, like uh, last year, there was, was like a very, um, let's say, very like like important uh, commentated edition uh, of Mein Kampf released from a, wasn't wasn't even a big, um, wasn't even like a, any like publish, like big publishing house or whatever, that they like just one as part of their, history offering or whatever, but it was actually published by the Institute for an historical institute in Munich, um, which uh, the uh, is like, it's it's heavily commentated. It's very, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting, like layout wise and how it's done. It's like, there is a clear and, and you, you know, like historians put a lot of work, obviously, into this. And uh, I think um, you're the money goes to the um, critical edition there, to the work of the of the critics and the, mm -hmm. the historians. Uh, so I don't I don't personally see that um, moral uh, um, quandary right. as much as you do. But, In this uh, instance, I mean, uh, just like kind of going forward, I think it opens that conversation. Like, say you were to release these films, then I think it would mm -hmm. be an important thing that 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 monetary aspect of it, I think, is an important part to consider. In how do we distribute these films? Where does this go? You know, because if yeah. just anyone can monetize them, or you give it to a certain distribution company and whatnot, and they're making money off of it. Yeah. I think there's there's an ethical question there, but there is all sorts of. I, sure. I agree with you that they should be made available, but you certainly need the context with them with these kind of materials it's the same conversation we've heard recently with stuff like gone with the wind being released and, and stuff obviously mm -hmm. on like a slightly different not as severe level but you know kind of same principle here and that these are you know yeah. works that you know need contextualization you know for that's work that should be paid of course yeah yeah absolutely as well you know yeah. like that you know it's it was more so the distribution aspect that that it was like, mm, you know, that's that's something that should be considered as well. Mm -hmm. this. But I agree yeah. that, that generally, uh, you, 
it causes more issues by you know keeping them and ke- creates more exactly, curiosity yeah. and that's you know so. that indoctrinates people i think a bit more and, and like i said that's that's covered that question is covered in the forbidden films documentary and i appreciate how it doesn't take that firm stance one way or the other I, you know i think it has mm. its you know leaning but it provides both sides with you know plenty of evidence and details and, and support and and so that uh less biased sense is you know I think a great insight into the, the discussion overall. Cool. Well, it's a great segment. Uh, glad, okay. glad, uh, <laughs> I'll try, I'll these. try and avoid uh, a Nazi film for next week. Uh, I don't know if you can, but I think you could try. <laughs> we'll see. I'm, I might explore uh, different avenues here. Maybe uh, look into something like uh, cannibalism or, you know, fantastic. Um, <laughs> sure. Speaking of making every film available, um, Pavlos has gone in on Netflix and we're going to discuss uh, their whole um, deal with the prestige directors. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I can't feel bad bringing this talk. It's like, ah, uh, you know, talk about the big like streaming uh, sites and stuff. It's like, uh, just kind of ultimately advertising for them. But yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, I couldn't really think of, I couldn't really decide on like a movie or whatever that I was want to talk about. Um, so I was like, ah, whatever. If I'm gonna talk, I'm just gonna talk about these sites, and I'm gonna shit on them. <laughs> no, I have but, a feeling this um, won't play as advertisement. I don't think they'll pay us. Yeah. <laughs> even so, right. I mean, do they really need? You know, can they really benefit even from more advertisement? Like, who doesn't no. know what Netflix is and what they're doing? Right, right. No, I mean, all advertise movie, best streaming service in, in here in Europe. <laughs> so, pay me, hire me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, no, but um, this uh, I, I watched uh, the two popes the other day, and I was uh, you know that got a pretty positive res- re- um, reception when it came out, and uh, I was you know I-, I thought it was really really horrible in many many ways, and also like quietly uh, propagandistic. Speaking of, of propaganda, quietly that as well, and just a total miss for me all around, and um, it just sort of triggered this. Uh, this reflection on and like this retrospective uh, look back on on like what has like 2020 was the year for these streaming services to shine and they did uh, in a way like the, it was financially and stuff like it's like yeah. was it was their year they they kind of one of the benefiters of the pandemic for sure and uh, like what what did they make of it like uh, and it, <laughs> I think the result is. Uh, that there's the conclusion that you have to come to it has to be like it's really underwhelming what they what they did with it like um for and it, it's it differs bet- like between uh, the different services a, a bit i think amazon does uh focuses fewer focuses less on movies uh puts out fewer like movies that they themselves produced and focus more on tv which i think is a is a good move actually personally um but like Netflix, of course, is inundating its platform with films where it's like I look at it, it's like if I click on this, I'm I, I'm I'm not convinced they're gonna there's gonna be a movie behind an actual movie behind this. It feels like a set. It feels like a prop or something. Like no way that they may make like who, uh, do they have the do they have robots that they've been keeping from us and and they've just been making the movies. Um, all this time uh, for for like these these throwaway like Netflix productions, but of course there's always a, there's a prestige you know pickups from uh, arrived and renowned directors, 
uh, now working for the streaming format. And just to name a couple, and I want to more focus on the last couple of years more than, mm -hmm. I don't know, like have been start, starting like, you know, we have examples from 2015 and stuff. So I want to focus on like 2020, maybe 2019 and, um, you know, add something if I forget it, but uh, there's, you know, we got um, Lee's uh, The Five Bloods. We had um, Mank from Fincher. We had, um, you, I mean, you want, if you want to count the two cops, you can do it. It's like from the City of God director, uh, who don't think has done much else that really uh, sort of uh, was more of a one-hit wonder there. But you know, two cops got a pretty good reception. Um, you had uh, help me out. Um, <laughs> uh, blanking. Uh, uh, thinking, Irishman uh, Roma. Coffin. Um, yeah. Ro Roma, uh, Kaufman, I think it, that's a big one for Trendrin as well, thinking of ending things. You had Marriage Story uh, by Baumbach. You had, um, you know, Scorsese, of course, um, with Irishman. And, you know, these 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 prestige releases, which um, I think by and large have been big misses. Like, I'd say the two um, exceptions for me, which is uh, Irishman, which was for me fine, but Scorsese for me post 2000s has been really fine anyway, so it's, it wasn't like a big uh, dancer for me, so that was okay. But uh, I, li I really liked Marriage Story, um, and Dombach has done Meyerowitz stories as well, which also which I also like. Um, yeah, so he's kind of uh, bucking that trend. But mm -hmm. he's got a new Sorry, one coming as well, I think called White Noise, and that's the one that kind of announced his uh, future deal with. Like all this stuff is going through Netflix, I think, from for at least a good while here. I got very okay. worried at the start of this year when Netflix made an announcement that every week there's going to be a new movie. I just don't think we should have that relationship to movie releases. I, I think right. that's too much content, not enough. I mean, there's no room for analysis in a weekly release schedule. Um, things come out, they're watched, and almost by design, I don't think Netflix wants these to stick with us in a way. I think they want us to consume the thing that comes the next week. It's almost a detriment to them if they have really sticky films that that make you uh, come back for one thing. Um, it can't be a one thing service. It needs to be um, mm -hmm. however many weeks in a year. You need a uh, seventy five movies that you watch on Netflix, not four or five. Yeah. You know, uh, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry, I think Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was like a a big thing last year. That's not quite prestige. They moved away in a few ways. Um, there was also that documentary, uh, Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, that was fantastic. But I agree there's like nothing from like a prestige director that, that arrives over, this is okay, like The Five Bloods and uh, uh, Trial of Chicago 7 are maybe the two that, that are awards likely. But, but that's maybe all they got from last year. Well, it's, it's interesting as well. Like the, I think what you brought up there, this kind of relationship, how film and television has evolved together with the, you know, advert of streaming and how that, does, that need for content at a more expedient rate has kind of uh, grown exponentially with them. Where we used to, you know, like tele where television used to be the kind of weekly thing that everyone would discuss on a, you know, it's a once a week thing that everyone would catch up on when streaming, you know, started dropping entire seasons at once, you know. Yeah. Uh, and taking that away, I guess that Netflix's idea then is that film is going to fill that spot then and that each film a week, you know, would do that. I don't know that that's a, the problem is as well with that is that you can't, 
run sufficient ad campaigns to get that going you know on a regular basis like the i mean they don't need one like we said you're on netflix you watch a movie then ideally they drop you into their next movie it's done right yeah and unless your goal is to make you know each film uh the the film a week the sensation to be talked about around the water cooler then you you do need everyone to be kind of aware of that in the week leading up to its release and you know the advertising is just entirely different now without you know mid-commercial breaks and everything uh so i I think that uh process is doomed to fail (laughs) i think they're most Mm -hmm. advertised or like the most that it became aware on television was like uh the Cloverfield Paradox, which is like a big Super Bowl ad. Of course, that was like probably 20 million just to get this on your TV. And then everyone goes home, watches it and gives a one star review. Right. I, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like such a sap for, for being part of that audience that fell um, out immediately. I'm going, to blame, happy. I'm going to blame my fiance for being a Cloverfield fan and like, you know, pushing yeah. us to watch that. I'm, I'm very um, happy that she doesn't know yet about the actual Cloverfield sequel they've announced. She will oh, after well. this episode. I know. But, Oh man, um, yeah. So, so about the you know one film a week. I mean, that like you said, that's not films. That co- that's content in their mind. Right. That's a different, yeah. a totally different paradigm. And um, and yeah, uh, I also really like what you said about you know they're not don't want us to remember them. I don't uh, think it they is do. Like, it's really, yeah. it's just really not more than the time it fills. Like it's not more than its runtime, basically. And um, like that treatment, I think is whatever. It's easy to ignore, but you know, new film by Fincher or whatever, that's something you, you want to see. Like, you can't sort of, uh, even even principles or whatever aside, even if you had, like, principles against these uh, streaming services or whatever, I think we, we like, I think uh, Fincher has earned us watching a new film. And uh, we, we certainly don't have principles, but, but we all did watch Fincher. So. Right. <laughs> so anyway, but, but yeah. So, and, like, these directors, these big directors, you know, they all get these... Um, Maybe not all of them, but I think I think a lot of them still get like these Netflix um, requirements. You know, you can only work with certain lenses. There's certain format <laughs> stuff that you have to uh, cater to and 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 adhere to and stuff. And that, and that stuff is like, I mean, I would say the results. I wouldn't have I, I, I wouldn't have said it before the films came out because I was like, you know, a great you know artists can work within restrictions and they can bring out something uh, great, um, but. Um, I think the results here have just been disappointing, especially I think uh, on like Fincher, Kaufman, and um, um, Lee. Um, Lee, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, like aesthetically, for me personally, I thought they all had a very like digital and sort of very like fake uh, and and look to them, like with a weird flatness to it and like but also like this weird saturation or like grading it's very hard to describe but they were all like of a look and that was really uh unfortunate as well it didn't help with uh films failed in other aspects but um that really didn't help and if i want i can also extend it a bit add another fourth hit to the mix which is uh coppola's on the rocks which obviously (laughs) I've, I've, I wrote the review on that. My 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 feelings on uh, Coppola uh, are you know have I've, they're they're out there. Document I documented them for for everyone to read. But uh, still, it's it was a new low, <laughs> let's say a new low uh, in a way. So yeah, I watched but, um, I watched that Palmer this week on Apple TV, which is like the new Justin Timberlake thing. It's just like you say, it's only content, and 
it's a very tried and true emotional manipulation, but not any kind that it wants to leave you with the message. I mean, you watch the movie and it spins you into the next thing. Like Cherry comes out next week, like the, the new Rousseau brothers. It's just like a constant onslaught of stuff. Not, not really Mm -hmm. movies. Exactly. I'd say, I'd say like one in 20 are, are actual legitimate movies worth a damn. I think at least the, the there's always exceptions, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I think at least the ones we're highlighting here from the kind of major uh directors of, of the era, they they wouldn't necessarily fall into that camp, but still we're finding that they are, you know, like large disappointments and you know, uh very underwhelming at best, and sometimes they're just complete disasters. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I also can't think of anything from the, the last year that really have stu- has stood out in any significant way. I was, I was very disappointed by uh, all of those films uh, that I saw. I mean, I wrote the review on Mank as well. And uh... <laughs> yeah, that was, oof. Uh, I mean, I guess, can we shout out, is, is that, was that a, is, does that count like as a stream release, uh, like um, Which American one? Utopia? Uh, yeah, um, I think that was, was that HBO, I, I believe? That was HBO, yeah. 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 So I guess, and that's you know, Lee a bit redeemed redeemed himself a bit there. Yeah. Least. So I'll, I'd say I just mentioned that for fairness' sake. But I uh, even like Five Bloods. I I, I don't think you I liked it better than yeah better than you guys did. I doubt I'd like it as much on rewatch, but uh, mm-hmm. Lee's American Utopia much more significant, I think. Yeah. Um. And so so yeah. What the, I think the bottom line should, here should be shouldn't be uh shouldn't be necessarily destructive, uh, but yeah. more another another sort of uh, like for me it's like yes uh, cinemas need to come back just because cinema as <laughs> a place as a communal experience uh, yeah and so on is is um is is very important but also with cinema comes uh, an idea of film that isn't content but uh, an idea of film that is that is art and something that is uh, to be you know that you take your time for that you uh, go out to a special place to, that you, um, you know, watch without distractions and just appreciate and think about, like have the time after after the watch to, to think about, to discuss. And I think that sort of slowness uh, to the process uh, should will, will, would also come back with, yeah. with cinemas reopening. And it's important that they do I, soon. I think you're yeah. right uh, and i think that i think the major aspect of this is that we're so inundated that we have a one-week conversation window on any film um and and that it's passed it was already very short for reviews i mean if your review is not out there before release there's no point talking about it but um there's the window keeps closing down it has really mm-hmm. become tv where it's the water cooler the next day and then the movie's fucking gone like um, they, mm-hmm. they have made it televisual and look and they've designed the movie experience yeah. to be as low impact as watching Stranger Things uh, season three, episode five. Right. Like uh, that's a, that's as quickly as they want it to leave your yeah. mind. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you, Come you back see us. that with the, uh, you know, the, the push with the more streaming services. That's where they're they're comfortable and where they want to operate. And uh typically where they're more interesting as well uh yeah you know e- even with a uh, with netflix like you know th- despite how much they're insisting on making movies a predominant part of their uh <laughs> output uh the their television will just be you know yeah. it's, it still reigns as the more interesting uh, i don't even know if i'll say superior necessarily but you know it's what has grabbed people more, more. i can't 
like, like probably the Irishman is the only Netflix film that has really even stuck with people, well, despite the fact that they have an Orson Welles film. It's really Which is the worrying. best thing on the service. Yeah, it, it is. is. It is. Uh, it's really worrying too when there are two critically acclaimed things like Low and Mindhunter. They can't find the resources to finish. So, uh, what are they going to do with TV? <laughs> it doesn't seem like very much. So, uh, I, it I seems uh, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One 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 last thing that I wanted to mention uh, with regard to the filming, the, the filming policy, their their film, uh, their content policy rather, mm-hmm. uh, is like. Also, you know, ramping up the content machine there might also have to do with like the uh, rival um, streaming services popping up and a lot of like third third yes. party films, so to speak, you know, falling away, uh, being being reserved for other <laughs> streaming services. And, uh, you know, I think that's the wrong, rea- the wrong reaction to that. <laughs> but um, I think that's that's uh, part of part of part of or a factor that uh, has certainly, um, you know, uh, exacerbated this pr- uh this uh, process and when you cut co- when your company becomes big enough you have to spend such a surplus of money to constantly demonstrate growth so for netflix to show growth for investors they have to go deep in debt and they have to spend more year on year so i understand why yeah. they have to throw money at everybody who could come to them i understand why they have to have a movie every week i just don't like it I th- well, yeah. I think another part of the problem that will continue to persist is that uh, there, there's still no transparency in their activity. We don't know. Yeah, we don't. What movies, Netflix, you know, what do movies do well on Netflix? There's no, you know, um, no protocol mm-hmm. for them to release any information on that. Like, I think the one thing they have is that they released some numbers for Bird Box. It's like the the biggest film they had when it came out, and we don't even know if those are like legit numbers, and we have nothing to compare it to. So. We don't know what yeah. that means or how it translates to to monetary income in any way. Uh, yeah. So it's all like you know they, they don't have the same rules and regulations that the the theaters do. So it's very hard to make judgments on their performance in, in general because they can do so behind closed doors. Yeah, that really is terrible for like reception history for you know people that are trying to reconstruct how certain films uh, sort of landed and. Uh, that's that's also yeah that's another another loss there but uh, yeah again my my impetus i think for bringing this up was more you know see look like you know 2020 you have the streaming services and if anything to me it's demonstrated um the uh the insufficiency there and uh sort of yeah. um reaffirmed that that really we really need uh the appreciation of film that comes with uh with the cinema back uh, mm-hmm. as soon as possible well, thank you for bringing that. That was that was fun to discuss and look at in a little bit yeah. more depth. Well, uh, I, I well, do, there is at least one film that you know has come out recently that uh, interest or is coming out. I can't quite recall. Um, for Sona, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it's on Sundance right now, so maybe like a November December release potentially for us. Um, I, I have no idea when it will Sorry, come did out. Did you say? Did you say for Sona? No, Sono. Persona. Oh, the oh, the Sono. Oh, okay. It's like, wait, what wow, is this Persona film? That's quite the gap. No, uh, Sono. Oh, no. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sono, of course. Uh, yeah, the uh, famed director of Love yeah. Exposure and now of Prisoner. One of my favorites. Land. Yeah, Love Exposure, fucking incredible. I, I'd believe. No, one of my favorite directors, also. Okay. Yeah, I love, I love Sono. I'd believe um, anyone who said like some of Sona's work is the best film. Um, I, I could look at any of them and find best qualities. Uh, this is, he had a heart attack right before filming this. So, um, 
something yeah. happened and Nick Cage was like, uh, let's uh, let's go make our film in Japan instead. So we have a really interesting mix of East meets West here as Nick Cage walks out, uh, camera focused on his buttocks as he walks out of a prison cell. <laughs> um, he puts on a bunch of fucking leather and Mad Maxes it up in like a 70s grit kind of way as he has like mm-hmm. a bombs implanted on his arms and if he comes anywhere <laughs> close to endangering a woman uh, the bombs will fucking explode and blow off his limbs um uh, he's given a task by the governor the great uh, bill mosley here uh to go and rescue an imprisoned woman in like this weird uh apocalyptic camp in this holy mountain uh Jorodowski, uh scenario which is like a sight trip of a Django movie, um, piecing together every cult uh, film imaginable. Um, I, I was so excited watching this. My heart was fucking racing because it did so many things I liked in a constant stream of them. But then there's this impulse too, where the film, not written by Sona this time, and you could tell it's constantly suggesting that it's going to do the most interesting thing. And then it never does any of them. It sets everything mm. up like it's going to be this big event. Like Nick Cage, of course, uh, he gets to yell testicle once, which is fucking great. And and he busts a nut at some point in the movie, which is also fun. But it nothing <laughs> else technically happens. I mean, it begins with like this mm-hmm. bank robbery and showing why he got arrested. And the cinematography is great. And Sona's techniques are very solid. It feels like a good Sono film. I mean, as good as any of them I have seen. Uh, as far as technique goes, but it the writing isn't there and the perspective of Sono isn't quite there. It just has all his uh, kind of uh, frivolous and hugely imaginative ideas on the side of the film. Mm-hmm. It feels like the what's actually the driving force of the film is somebody else who's not nearly as inspired and there's not quite like a continuous plot that makes any sense. Uh, I think there's a lot of aesthetic ideas like wrapping women up in like the shreds of mannequins is a really creepy idea and really cool and shows something about their repression in Japanese society and all that. And I think it's playing off like the um, Japanese cinema of atomic bombs and radioactive energy. And that stuff's really cool. I mean, uh, and it's playing off stuff like toxic Avenger. I mean, there's everything I really like is in here and it's, I feel like watching it in a midnight movie screening with a bunch of friends and um, half the audience is wasted and just yelling testicle at the screen along with the great Nick Cage, I think is the proper viewing experience. So watching it alone just through Sundance, um, again, isn't the way this is meant to uh, be seen, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, especially it doesn't sound like, you know, Sona, of course, he- extremely productive director before yes. his heart attack to like five films a year we're talking like five films a year mm-hmm. uh sometimes uh for some years and uh <clears throat> always one to i think what well, i think is one of the best contemporary directors always want to marry uh wildly uh this on paper disparate and uh incongruous um things into like, like showing where they overlap in discourse, like where, where they, they sort of uh, converge, uh, like converges things that are don't have anything to do with each other. Yes, uh, you think, and like all of a sudden you have like this um, film about a t- turtle, um, <laughs> the animatronic turtle that sort of yes. grow, grows in size or whatever, becoming, you know, becoming like a film about the Japanese sort of angst and the sidle. Um, rift and 
the uh, atomic bomb and it's like, you know, stuff like that. And you could do that for all of his, at least the successful films. Mm. Um, I think you can, you can be like, you can show like, oh man, this, this, this is like, you watch someone uh, in the kitchen and they're throwing 10 different things and you think it's going to taste awful and then you start eating it and it's a bit, uh, so, you know, this is a strange taste, but then you realize, wow, this tastes fantastic. And that's kind of the, the best, most successful uh, Sono films are, are like that, I would mm -hmm. say. And I feel like this sort of this uh, transcendent quality of like, thing, like a lot of like crazy things all of a sudden forming into something that seemed sort of... Uh, you know, was, well, makes made, made sense and sort of was there all this time and you couldn't sense, see it yes. because it's, yeah, and you couldn't see it before because it's just a crazy combination, but all of a sudden it makes sense. I think that last sort of transcendent uh, step in the process is maybe missing from yes, this one. I would I would say that's exactly nail on the head. There's that there's that thing mix, missing that makes it a cohesive Sono movie. I think it's just that last step. And it's mm. so fucking close to being one of the most fun movies. Like, I I had so much fun watching it that I can't discount it for that aspect. Um, I, there's so many things going on that I can't even not recommend it. I I feel like it it almost has to yeah. be seen because nobody else has ever made this movie, uh, and mm -hmm. and that in particular I think is valuable. Even if the movie fails itself in the middle and its plot. Uh, there's just no drive there. I mean, there's no reason to watch this movie, but I also have 500 reasons why everyone should. Yeah. Um, I don't know if David uh, has a reaction here. No, <laughs> no, too busy looking up my next uh, Nazi film I'm going to put on after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, we won't uh, interrupt you, but uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> there's, there was also, did you see, um, Cal, did you see, last year he had a film, uh, Red Post on Escher Street, I think it was called. Yeah, I haven't uh, got to had, it. Um, yeah, I've done most of my Sona watching just the last month. I I saw mm -hmm. Love Exposure when I was like a teenager. It, it shifted yeah. a lot of my ideas about what movies could really be and what I was open to watching. Um, I thought I was more mm -hmm. closed-minded before then, and uh, I think very young you have more objectivist ideas about what you're willing to engage with. But mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. Love Exposure, I was like, "Fuck, you could make anything. I'll watch it." Yeah. Yeah, I've seen about 10 or so of his, which is like only a fraction. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's about 50 uh, something, I believe. Yeah, yeah, but um, but uh, I think I've seen like most of the important ones. Not just like two or three I still need to get to, but uh, but yeah, I mean, even, even the failure is always interesting uh, to watch. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, obviously not going to miss this uh, this one either and uh, <laughs> going to watch Red Post as well, hopefully soon. Um, yeah, it's shame. It's shame it doesn't quite come together. Like, uh, yeah, still worth while. Um, yeah, the thing is, you know, when you make that many movies, you're bound to have a few clunkers. Like, it's just, yeah. of course, yeah, yeah, of course, it's, it's impossible to avoid. I think the yeah. I think the most gracious thing we could say is just with gratitude that Sono survived the heart attack and then made this fucking exactly. heart racing and insane work of art. That's a uh, yeah. Art, no matter how you slice it, but just not very driving or interesting art. It's all, always more worthwhile mm. than the, those Netflix films that we were talking yes. about here before. Yes. And that it, yeah. even if it's not successful or it's kind of all over the place or a mixed bag of good and bad things or something doesn't quite come together, it's still way more interesting to, to look at. And, and that's why, like, the kind of numerical system that we have to use as, you know, a lot of critics lots of times, like, it just it's doesn't very flat, do, yeah. it doesn't do service of to, course, like, yeah. the discussion yeah. here. 
you know, you right. can have a, a mediocre by the numbers movie that, you know, gets the job done, but it's not really like a film in the same way that something that a, a spectacular mess can be. Mm. Totally, totally. I think, I think like the, the sevens are, seven is like the number for that in a way where it's like <laughs> seen so many, so many, there's so many uh, sort of sevens, which is like, you know, this is, there's like a total league there, like two leagues there coexisting in that rating um, where it's like, you know, there's like a, one that comes from the one side and the one that comes from the other side, like, and lands on the seven. And it's a totally, totally different thing. Yes. Like there's films where it's like, I, you know, and, and it's often, often it's also like um, new releases, like just for, well, I didn't even know if it was last year, no, I guess 2019, man, time. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, thinking like, you know, uh, Lady of Portrait on Fire, um, Synonym, like these two French films, for example, I was a bit sort of uh, more critical of them than others. Well, Synonym was discussed pretty quickly, but like for Lady as well, a bit more critical. But it's like, you know, those are films that even though I have serious, uh, um, you know, sort of a bit reprehensive about certain aspects, like they are absolutely worth watching and engaging with. Like that's a totally different thing than something that sort of barely meant. Like that's you know, fine, good, but sort of manage the script by and sort of uh, get get to that to that. Absolutely, um, I'm super glad that uh, I got to see it and that Sundance was available for for something this year. So, uh, uh, maybe see it once it comes out. We'll we'll see how it comes out first. Maybe it will be mm-hmm. one of these Netflix movies. I don't know who's distributing. So, uh, are we yeah. expecting a review from you on it, Calvin? I I have no <laughs> idea how to piece it together. We'll see if I can. But for now, this would, is my you know, review. It would be pretty disappointing if someone were to go and see a film from some dance and then just never write about it. Uh, you would never <laughs> want that. Yeah, uh, I just, I guess, I'm just putting it out there. Like, I guess that, if that I would reviewed be kind it, of shameful if someone I, did that. Yeah. yeah, if I reviewed it, I'd have done more Sundance reviews than someone who did something like that. So exactly, I guess exactly my point. So. Burnout, burnout, schmurnout, Calvin. Get to work here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next week. <laughs> yes i think i will write something but i need more time it's fair fair enough you know as long as you don't take years to get to it uh, i think then we're fine <laughs> don't want to take several months to put out a festival review do you exactly yes all right all right uh why don't we take a quick break and come back with our uh feature for this week yeah we'll have uh stop making sense and then we'll also analyze or at least rank the albums of the talking heads up for that discussion got a lube lube lubich oh god i can just leave uh, again if you just <laughs> well i think we're all lubed up and ready to go are we recording here again we are yes we are we are okay lubed up ready to go lubiched up and ready to run you guys ready to make some flippy floppy <laughs> Uh, we are Always. some slippery people 
now, now that we're blued up. It's true. Uh, Talking Heads, uh, maybe my favorite band. Uh, I guess we should talk about our personal discoveries of Talking Heads. Like for me, it's just like the first band that I really found myself. Like my dad already had like all the Seattle artists covered, so I had all the Alice in Chains and Nirvana and Pearl Jam from him, and then. Uh, once I got on the computer and started like finding my own stuff, I think like Remain in Light was like, of course, the the prominent one that everyone knew. So uh, it it was just an easy access point because I I knew like Psycho Killer and everything. And God, I, I love Talking Heads just from the moment I started exploring a full um, discography. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, uh, it's interesting because. Uh... The, the the talking heads like there's the they're not so big here not re- don't mm-hmm. really get much like radio play or anything so it was really not something that I was exposed to before I actively uh, sought it out and so um, a couple of years ago I I, I um, started doing uh, these projects where <clears throat> I would take a band and then I would listen to all the albums but also like take like a whole week for one album keep listening to it like sometimes i would listen to an album like 30 times before moving on um and uh that's and and talking heads was you know one of the one of the early ones that i did i think it was actually the second or third i did uh um that i listened to in the um with that sort of uh you know mindset of really getting to see the evolution here really uh learning all the al- albums uh, by heart in a way and um and yeah, it was uh, it was revelatory. Uh, it's a, an amazing band, and for sure one of my uh, favorites uh, of all time. So uh, I I don't have quite the storied history that you guys do with Talking Heads, but uh, definitely a, a similar level of affection. Um, they were not like a, a major discovery necessarily for me. I think I came across them like first, or really like understood that this is a, a sensational band the first time when I first watched Stop Making Sense. But before then, I knew them from their various radio play over here, the big hits like, you know, Once in a Lifetime, Once in a Lifetime Psycho Killer and such. Um, but yeah, the, after watching the, the, the documentaries, when I started to really get a better feel and, you know, direction for them, you know, I sought out all the albums and such and, and listened to them. Uh, not uh, 30 times each like uh, Pavlos here has, but, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to them and uh, it's, I think it's undeniable that they're, they're masters of their craft and really uh, pioneers of that uh, subsection of, uh, you know, the, the rock genre. I think we'll have a lot to talk about because there's so much just with talking heads that's interesting about them. Mm-hmm. I think it there's been like a fervor about talking heads like the last few years that I've experienced where I think it's a very inclusive and welcoming community too. Um that it it's one of those bands that can support a community because there's so much going on. Um and there's mm-hmm. there's so much mythologizing and uh <laughs> multicultural and uh layered aspects to their music and I, when yeah. I read David Burns' How Music Works uh, a couple of years ago, I think that's where it really like hit a crescendo for me where I became like a <clears throat> fanatic of all of this music. Yeah, uh, I think also um, they have, I would say they have at least two um, sort of periods, which I would characterize as pretty, like, pretty different. So they had this moment where they evolved into something else in a way. No, never was like, like losing... Uh, while losing their identity or anything but like it's always a reinventing Mm -hmm. um and i think there's like at least two like big sort of 
uh, periods there. So that, 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 you know, you have like, uh, so obviously you can, you can appeal to a broader audience like that. Another thing I think is that, um, the, the talking heads, uh, like songs and, and tracks and like and, and lyrics and what, what is put forward there, I think appeals can, can appeal to like, um, you know, both to more like sophisticated, uh, listeners, which mm. uh, sort of can appreciate sort of the, you know, get really like invested maybe in, in the lyrics and the, and the, the really the complex, you know, la layers of, of music and, but also are just, um, and especially obviously the singles and stuff, you know, have like this what, totally wide appeal, which where you can, you know, go to without any prior, uh, I don't know, interest or knowledge, or it's very like democratic uh, uh, in, the, in that way. So I think it hits like very different um, sort of uh, audiences uh, as yeah. well. Um, I think they may even have more than two phases. I mean, I think each album is almost like its own self-include phase and we'll go through those but i can explain I like, what i mean by two yeah, yeah, bit, yeah totally um i think we self-qualified pretty well um and i think we're covering stop making sense just as as a motion picture first right right like a let's look yeah. at it as a movie and this, talk is, about this is still a movie podcast after all let's yeah. you know we don't want um, to forget that and yeah, but sometimes sense. we are food podcasts. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and today we're also a music podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, and stop making sense is like the height of their well populism and like international acclaim too. And it it's like the mm. the height of the band capturing like a specific moment in time that's really special about the development of their music. Mm -hmm. It's but uh, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, David. I was going to say, yeah, Stop Making Sense is often acclaimed as the, the greatest concert documentary er, ever made, which, you know, if you want to talk in such aggrandizing terms, uh, you know, there's, there's an which argument we do, to be made. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it, it earns that prestige very greatly. It's uh, directed, of course, by uh, Jonathan Demi, who, you know, same director as like uh, Silence of the Lambs and such. And this is one of the other significant films of his uh, oeuvre uh, and, and, uh, Something not to be forgotten there is his, his eye as a as a filmmaker and a creator, which plays a very crucial role in its uh, presentation. It kind of shows how uh, docu or documentaries of concerts would be filmed from then on. Um, I it reminded me of looking back at like the old Olympics movies um, and realizing <laughs> this is how all sports would be shot from here. Like everything mm -hmm. I identify in an NFL or NHL broadcast is already put mm -hmm. into motion, like in the, in the thirties or twenties, you know, and that's how I feel like watching stop making sense is every concert film from here on is going to find like these personal aspects and understand the layering of the music in a way that presents it in both the sequential order but one that tells the story about the band. Well, yes and no, right? Like, uh, yeah. obviously, uh, if that was the case, then we would, I guess, have a lot of stop making senses, but we don't because it's like, <laughs> well, you know, there's only things... one talking heads, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But I wouldn't even, uh, I wouldn't even say it's just like because the band here adds the thing that puts it over uh, on top of uh, for us. But uh, it's like I would say, like, just like with the sports stuff, like certain things trickle down like it's, influ it's influential but certain things trickle down but you know it's not like uh all of a sudden everyone can f like finish the concerts like like jonathan demi here yeah um yeah so the thing it's still absolutely uh is uh 
I mean, yeah, what was going to say? It is it is a incredible film and one that cannot. I think the important thing is that it cannot be limited uh, to the to the to the genre it's representing. It's not just a musical film, um, um, and it's not uh, well. I guess, and what also some people say, it's not. It's it's definitely not just a music a recording of a a concert. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, ludicrous, and I think um, yeah. it can be refuted in so many ways. And I hope to make that argument uh, properly in an article that I'm writing for the site uh, on the film. Um, I think it's important to see here all the like. It's you don't do it by you don't make the argument by. Um, separating the filmmaking and the music you do it by like the, the the link of the two is and the f- sort of the musical nature uh, and riv- rhythmic nature of the filmmaking and the um sort of uh, you know cinematic almost narrative aspects of the music those those two um that con- uh, that convergence is uh, where where the greatness here i would say uh, lies and um where it can also be be analyzed and absolutely put into words. Um, I think you do have to look at both and that it is a synthesis of both elements. Um, as we begin, we're looking like at a kind of like a blank stage as we get some credits and um, it takes something that feels like an electronic song, like Psycho Killer and breaks it down to like a one man uh, instrumental, which is such an interesting thing to do with that. And it starts like breaking apart and deconstructing the song by the end. Um, But that begins like the layering of a band. Like we begin with David Byrne, of course. And um, what he does with that song is interesting outside what the album does with it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I think it's an important thing as well. Like that comparison between just a like concert footage, like or looking at it as a solely a document of a of a show, certainly is a is a reductive way to view it. And you know, well, I don't in, think in a way, it is a well, documentary. Uh, well, well, no, I meant like as a document, just as like this is an archive of what this is. Yeah, as opposed yeah, to an thing. expression. Yeah, uh, right. as and we've seen that like kind of like a similar sentiment in other concert docs before even by like acclaimed filmmakers and in other ways like there's a a rolling stones documentary i remember seeing from uh scorsese called uh shine a light and uh, it's it's not nearly as uh, inspired or like directive in its visuals even from someone as you know uh, lauded as he is and looking back to to last year you know the whole conversation around hamilton and such and like is this really a film you know is this Mm -hmm. just more than a recording and it's because you don't see that direction from the filmmaker behind it as much and the motivation behind the editing and the choice of camera usage here and stop making sense is really a testament to that authorial voice behind the lens and how you can use that in tandem with the the concert medium to bring out something wholly original and unique because it's more than just putting you in the audience or giving you a different perspective than you would from standing in the front row it really has to utilize the medium itself and combine the two experience to, to be something in totally unique yeah i think it does all of that absolutely well while still well it is still documentary of a space and time yeah um it those aspects are important and can't be discarded either sure but that's that's the the beauty of the film is that it 
and that's why it's such a great piece of art is that it does all of these things. It functions as a document, as a testament to the the event that happened, this performance, but also it is its own work of art and expression in and of totally. itself. And yeah, documentaries are art. It's not yes. that. Yeah. All no, documentaries yeah, no are, question of that. Right. But there's certainly there are some documentaries that are that lean towards being just documents, informative, and not, yeah. yeah, and not expressive and you know artistic in their own right. Um, and so this this is again the prime example of a a concert documentary that manages to do both and excels uh, in ways that we don't usually associate with a concert documentary. I think most concert documentaries have that kind of stigma of just being kind of like a, a camera planted mm -hmm. somewhere in the audience and mm -hmm. you know communicating the show. And there there doesn't seem to be much motivation behind the different you know cuts and perspectives and such. But when watching Stop Making Sense, you get the sense of Demi's voice throughout the entirety and how he's trying to interpret talking heads uh you know and their artistic expression at the same time they're they're in conversation with each other and watching that unfold is really a, a thing to behold it's really breathtaking and it's so exciting i i even started watching some of them just to refresh uh before this I, I, it's so hard to turn off this movie it just grabs mm. me every time there's there's like a hook to it that other concert documentaries don't have like uh, pavlos is saying it really is the synthesis of of visions that that the filmmaking matches the songs where they begin and end. I, I think they, I think it matters, and it, I think it, it really pays homage to the people in the band too, and, and the whole idea of Talking Heads is this multi-layered band that, uh, you know, at some points they had like thirty people in the studio by by like naked. I mean, they 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 kept expanding their sound in multicultural lenses, which I think to me perfectly captures here. Um, and he really gets mm -hmm. to play into each of those members. It's it's never just burn and then go into a drummer mm -hmm. and then then a bassist like like most yeah. of you. And it's I, about okay. I was gonna say I think that's mm -hmm. an important thing with the, the the film really exhibits that those who are not already you know big Talking Heads fans may not be aware is that it really exhibits all of the members of the bands as yes. equally important contributors to the the work uh and often it feels like at least in you know uh, the cultural discussion and such that David Byrne kind of just overshadows as the cultural figurehead of the band and like he is Talking Heads when that's absolutely not the case and you know uh Demi does a great job at you know demonstrating that and really bringing them out of the background for some of them but also you know uh the band itself does in the way they choreograph the performance and make sure to highlight and exhibit each individual particularly in how you were talking earlier and how the the concert builds up the band with each number they incrementally add another person to the to performance and another member uh aspect of it you know by the time you get to you get the second song and you have the the bassist come in and then the backup vocals and the third and the drumming you know in the fourth one it's ingenious i mean it it takes a lot of ingenuity on burns part and the whole band's part to to choose the right songs and to layer them in the right way where you're fundamentally building parts that they create a greater whole until there's this catharsis by the end where uh, we're even wrapping in audience and um, the camera keeps expanding with each song too. Uh, what it's yeah. willing to show and how it's willing to frame the art is uh, different. And I mean, there's a beginning, middle and end. So uh, there are analyses out there that um, I, I don't quite have on hand, but there, there are readings that are valid. Like a, a, this is a story with beginning, middle and end. And it's perfectly structured as a movie, I think. Yeah, I think I think uh, 
during our group watch together, which was great fun uh, rewatching it with uh, with you guys. Um, and and just uh, you know pre the joint appreciation for the film and also you know our, our thoughts and feelings on it. Um, I, I think I mentioned that um, you know e um, like if even if you don't um, if you like you, you don't have to make out a specific narrative that these songs form or that whatever the film forms or whatever. But but I think more importantly is or more important is the sense of a narrative that it, yeah. that there there is that there could be a narrative and i think that latent um that latent uh, narrative uh feeling there and potential there is is more important than what the what the actual narrative could be and spelling that out and sort of analyzing that with the songs you can do that but i think yeah it's more it's more about the sort of the the hidden sort of latent uh, 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 um, feeling of a narrative there. And I think that that's totally for me the case. Is, uh, I think it's a, that's a consequence of the and a result of the filmmaking, which is, you know, really uh, so, um, you know, there's so much effort put into it. And it feels like at any moment it could go backstage and it could be like just wrap, like tie back into some feature film where like, I don't know, David Byrne goes backstage and has like a conversation in the hallway with someone or whatever, because yeah. the camera is always so present and uh, it's always so, it's like so conscious. It's not, it's not this, you just sit there, you watch and there's a focus on the music. It's yeah. always, you know, the camera is always like in inter uh, in interplay um, with, with, with the images. And um, I feel um, to the, too that mm -hmm. like a documentary, of course, you could go and do like the whole history of the band. Like I feel like Scorsese's does more of the backstage stuff and, and shine a light and he's looking more at like what the Rolling Stones were. But without doing that, I think Stop Making Sense does that. I think it is. Oh, yeah. I think the story is the band. It is talking heads. Like, uh, at least for me, I don't think it needs to mm -hmm. be interpreted literally. I think that almost devalues it also. Uh, I, I do think you just get the story by watching. I think what uh, what Pavels was getting in on on that idea of a an inherent narrative that's kind of more abstract there in in the show. I think that's also something that's inherent to any great uh, live performance, any concert, is that the the planning out of the songs and the transitions to them and whatnot, and the sense of narrative you get watching everything unfold is an integral part of the the performance that needs to to be there to keep the audience, you know, engaged and going from song to song. And, you know, so as much as it is on, you know, Demi's part in helping with the, the visual aspects and communicating that fluidity and that sense of progression, so too does the, the band itself, you know, deserve credit for you know tying each number to each other it's you know picking out those specific songs that are going to work you know coming after another one and such and they all flow into each other and give a, a sense of an overall cohesion mm -hmm. yeah and i think the 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 achievement here is that to me just adds to it brings it yeah. forward enhances it uh, because like you said yes every like a show you know a, a music a, a concert is a curated um display of something historical which is yeah. a the sort of discography of a the, the career of a, of a band what they've put out in the past and um sort of curating that and uh you know being there and going through the songs i mean it is, in, it is inherently like you said totally uh there's a narrative a historical uh, practice um of recapitulation and um and the achievement here is, yeah, that the, the me enhances that. But I wanted to say one more thing to the point of documentary. I think um, the uh, for me, um, 
documentaries, you know, the, I would say they always, I mean, there's different kinds of documentaries, you know, it's a story genre, of course, uh, it goes all the way back to beginnings of, of the medium. Um, I would say they exist in this double state in a way, the best documentaries where it's like, um, you can all like, you can almost like close one eye, close the other eye and have like get both of it. It's like, on the one hand, it, it, this exists as the document of a thing that happened. On the other, this is a, an artistic um, transformative uh, piece that brings out something completely that was that's basically hidden in the material and brings it forward and uh, transcends the material and, and transforms it. And it's like both of these coexist. Like you shouldn't do the close one and close the other because that's not how it works. They totally coexist. And I think that's the, um, that's also something that where I would say, I would describe it, for example, differently for like a film essay, for example, which can work with documentary footage material, like the same, could work with the same material, but it's like the um, sort of the document, the function of the document there is much reduced uh, in favor of the uh, the statement, you know, and the complete transformation of the material, making something basically totally different out of it or whatever out of it, uh, totally sort of uh, instrumentalizing it for whatever argument uh, you want to make. And, and that's kind of where I would say, like the film essay sort of um, ramps up one of these functions, but in the documentary, like they coexist. And so, yes, um, it is always a document while also being something um, completely different that, that uh, was always sort of dormant in the material. And uh, yeah. I would describe it as kind of like it's a Venn diagram where you've got these two parts that are connected in the, in the center and that middle ground is where every great documentarian wants to hit they want to have it yeah. be in an right. exhibition in a historical you know uh, chronicle of the mm -hmm. subject but also have an artistic element and a creative you know commentary and vision for themselves some documentaries you know like they lean one way more than the other and there's a, a yeah, whole host sure. out there that are way more document than documentary but you know they're there that's always there that sense of document is always a critical part that you know is yeah. inseparable from the expressive and artistic element as well and and one just one then sorry Cal, uh, is that um the uh i would say the mastery is in for me at least i just uh i'm talking kinds of documentaries but i have like a, a pension for the, the mastery that comes with you cannot say you can all with stop making sense with the exception of a couple of shots for example, the one where they burn like rises. Uh, I think it's in left wing war for left wing wartime mm. at the beginning, where it, like rises and it's clearly like you get like, you get, like this perspective of like almost like this narrativized like perspective of him of someone like waking up sort of like in a in a feature uh, uh, in a fictional uh, setting in a way where it's but other other than a couple of shots, you cannot reasonably say anything about what you see. It it is just the document. It's, it's like it is really unaltered in a way. But um, uh, the uh, the mastery comes from the, the trans transcending that and bringing out whatever is hidden hidden there in meaning, um, just through the filmmaking. You know, the the editing, the shots, the um, the um, you know the the uh, framing, uh, the blocking, everything. Like this is how you bring it out. So purely by filmic means, so to speak, and not by, for example having some talk, haha talking heads uh, that come in and commentate uh, on stuff or like, you know, getting like statements that are in on a different um, level of uh, um, 
uh, sort of that the occupy like different sort of places uh, systematically. Like you know, you got like the material, you got the the statement on the material by um, historical figures that maybe were part of it. Then you got the filmmaking on top. It's like it really is this mastery of like you, all you see is the concert of the you see the music and the concert, and still it's brought out by all these uh, filmic. Um, devices, uh, everything that you need, need to need to get from that. And that's why Stop Making Sense is absolutely a, a cinematic uh, achievement in every sense of the word. In American Utopia, David Byrne talks about poetry, nonsense poetry. And I think it's part of what has always been very connective about his work is that um, not everything he does has to make sense. Um, and stop making sense doesn't always. I mean, it's a there's a lot of artistic ideas about like government and everything. And even a talking head song, it might not have a through line of a connective story that you could actually read that way, but there's something in the song that's layered and interesting. And the albums say something about our society in a bigger way than I think most musical acts ever would. Oh, I think like, uh, any great form of art it's not the the literal translation that that we as critics can make and put on it and yeah. say this is what the artist intended by saying or doing this it's it's the expressive quality that we interpret and, and feel that's supposed to come through um you know like lyrical content is is probably the most literal way you could translate an artist's intent but that isn't always the most effective and intended way for that to come across uh, you know and the more abstract and you know feel oriented uh, aspects of artistic expression are usually more resonant and powerful and uh, I think that's what exists here so when it's you know you do say that it's not always clear or it doesn't always make sense uh, I think that's you know perfectly you know uh, tuned for th this kind of uh, medium it's just what you're supposed to feel like it doesn't have to be sensical or logical or straightforward well, yeah, like life is irrational why shouldn't lyrics and music and art be irrational too I, it's, I think it it's about yeah it's about what you take so, away mm -hmm. and what you interpret more than what is meant to be interpreted. Per I, I would argue a bit against that in, a, in this, uh, just this tiny bit, because um, I think if there wasn't, like, I think it's important that there's obviously not one one thing you can nail it down to, but I think it makes some sort of semantic offers to you. Like you can sort of, you can uh, bring, um, like interpret and uh, construe like the, the movements and the like what whatever elements introduced for each song be it like a a lamp or wearing glasses and gesticulating like a like a televangelist or whatever like you you're gonna there's absolutely offers there for meaning yes. like there's here's an offer like you can you can you can read this in, yeah. in some way I mean, it's putting not, words behind them on a stage you could you it's could not read irrational what they mean yeah yeah it's not irrational like dadais for example no. that's not the kind of um arbitrary like uh you know it's not not a completely free uh game of of just sounds and syllables and words no no, no. there is yeah there, there's right, the offers there to sorry Go i ahead. was most or meaning like the the expressive and non-literal quality of, of totally yeah in, no. in that sense yeah that's that's what i was trying to mean more so For sure. like, For oh sure. this is abstract and you can take whatever you want away from it it's and that's not the sure. case you know, artists expressing what they mean to to the audience, and the more kind of uh, the the less literal way it translates to us through that form. Right, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, 
do, uh, do we want to transition to the to the music uh, discussion here? Slowly, yeah, because we may I think well, we've uh, we've I, been we've we can start with the selection what of, it is uh, for like thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can start with the selection also. I mean, we can we can do the transition like by just quickly talking about you know stop making sense. Uh, the tracks there, the music is um, mostly uh, comprised of um, the uh, fear of music and remain in light. Uh, mm-hmm. Are the two like main sources, album sources that it uh, absolutely um, draw? Uh, sorry, and of course, um, speaking sorry. in tongues, uh, and of speaking course, uh, speaking in tongues. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, right. And uh, I think uh, there's like one or two of like from more from more songs, but uh, by and large, it's that. And you got a, and also you got a, a nice uh, song by Tom Tom Club uh, in there. Uh, <laughs> That's true. As well. It's a really um, good range, and it's not an album where I dislike any of the songs uh, there are a few that i like less than their album versions but essentially it's it really is the best of talking heads that functions specifically for all my mm-hmm. interest in them when we were watching together we definitely were, were going over uh which songs we like better in you know their their album versions and which ones we like more the the live ones and you know what's interesting is it because it this one has such uh stop making sense as so many different interpretations particularly in like the the first example we brought up like psycho killer being a more you know acoustic driven version and uh you know more broken down uh versus the the more electronica version that everyone is familiar with and uh, yeah. I, I think that one's like a, a chief example of one where i prefer the interpretation of it in the mm-hmm. live performance here and it just jives with me so much more and it's not to say that you know i think one is inferior it's just it's certain like i think and this is the case with all these songs is that they're all great songs great selections and the the var- variance we have between choosing between the two it just you know it opens up the door for uh, all sorts of more enjoyment I think I noticed a pattern where if the track on the the album version wasn't like quite one of my favorites, I would usually like the live version better. That's kind of a trend that I noticed during the the films. Like, okay, this is not maybe one of my favorites, but uh, I think it's uh, um, actually enhanced by by the by the live version. I I think so too. There's some like uh... intents and purposes. (laughs) We should talk about the albums uh, here, right? Uh, Well. my last thought on that is that like the context of the music mm. is really important and it shifts even the songs that I don't really care about, like Swamp on an album that it's kind of a filler song that does a functional job in an album, but here totally. it's interesting to watch. So, Yeah, absolutely. The lighting there, what they do is really effective and totally elevates that, that song. Um, yeah, right. So, I mean, uh, maybe I can start with what I just quickly explained what I meant earlier by saying mm-hmm. like there's like at least two um, sort of stages of development from talking it. I think it's fair to say they started out as a sort of very, you know, guitar and bass heavy, like uh, post-punk new wave uh, band with like, but still already with like this very um, sort of catchy and like, um, like lyrics of like uh you know burn like playing certain types to certain characters that's never spoken yeah there's a never spoken like in earnest but also not completely ironically either it's like you know taking on assuming different personas for the different songs that's already from the, the case from the start and um and then uh obviously with the collaboration with uh, Eno, Brian Eno, um starting with uh, fear of music uh, you get this totally different sound, which uh, ramps up, which becomes much more multi-layered. You get a, you get more a lot of 
sort of different uh, um, in, in genre influences. Uh, you get like more sort of choir, you get more electronics, you get more instruments, you get like Afro uh, beat, uh, whatever, uh, like uh, uh, influences, a ton of stuff in there. Like you can't, really, it's, it's, a, it's for a different song, it's almost different. Yes. Um, and that's kind of the second, I would say. That's that's kind of the a different awesome talking okay. head again. I think, I think we do that's have awesome. the same stages then, because for me, it's yeah, pre and post uh, Eno involvement, um, which yeah, and then they they incorporate different world music for uh, relatively each album kind of has its own uh, taste and flavor to it. They they either break it down or kind of build up a larger band, um, and they kind of facilitate right. between those two ideas. Uh, so um, should, we, should we rate these albums? Should we find out which one ultimately is is the talking <laughs> head album? Yeah, I mean, we should say that. I mean, I and I think all of us like like all these albums to some extent. I like. I mean, every, I, I like a song on every one. I'll say that there's yeah, something sure. great That's about a, each one. Good way to put it. Yeah, and uh, also, I mean, we can just you know we will maybe say we'll come back to stop making sense at the end. But uh, we'll just leave it out here. Um, yeah. I'll also leave out the name of the band is Talking Heads, which is another great laugh album by them. I think it's two perform comprised of like two performances, and it's more focused on the earlier albums, uh, especially the first two. So uh, if you want really also really great live uh, versions of those, unfortunately no film to go with them. But mm. um, I really recommend that um, that live album. And uh, obviously shout out to Tom Tom Club as well, which I think. Uh, <laughs> Is I really I, I like I like them. I think should we, should we really start cool. at like the bottom, like what we think is worst? I don't know if you have like a written ranking as well. I have a list. Yeah. Okay, I, I do have a list. <laughs> uh, should we start at the bottom? Should we each give our worst? Sure, okay, I, let's give I, our number eight. I don't okay. have like a like a specific list. I'm kind of just uh you know freestyling this, so I'm gonna kind of go off of what you guys are saying and, and weigh in. Because like I said, I didn't uh, go to Talking Heads uh, school for higher learning like <laughs> uh, Pavlos did. <laughs> go ahead we've definitely been studying them closely for a few years so uh, you could just yeah, try sure. where you need to here i'm a, I'm a freshman here in this uh category <laughs> well do you want to say which, which is your least uh, yeah I, I, I mean i <laughs> i would have to look over them all again and kind of like just even remember okay. what all the songs okay. are so let's get into so it yeah. i'm gonna let i'm gonna let you guys drive enough, the car here I, I'm, i'll pipe up in the back and like either like agree or disagree and give like commentary okay. as we go along you guys okay. you guys take the wheel okay i think cal and i uh can we, I, I don't know if it's true, but I assume it's true that we both have their um, last albums in last, like the last three. Is that uh, in the last three places? Is that, um, is I, that the case for you? I can't totally say if it's true, but I have Little Creatures last at least. How okay. about you? I have True Stories last. Okay. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't really put True Stories, so I guess that would be last. Uh, I don't okay. really, oh, yeah, you didn't. I haven't seen, yeah. the, I haven't seen the movie, so uh, that would probably okay. be last for me. I just didn't include it. Okay, fair. Yeah, I think the True Stories songs are just kind of flat. There's yeah. some with like catchy tendencies, but it's like a very pop, poppy like tenant like catchiness to it. And yeah, I think I think it's kind of the most conventional. Talking Heads at, at their most conventional for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on seven, then after right after that is Little Creatures. Um, right, and for Little Creatures, it's like the most populous and stripped down Talking Heads. Like they take out all the yeah. fundamental part of their world music building that they've done up to that point and they like strip it down to just like a david byrne like not at his most lyrically resonant and not really connecting as much with the themes um and mm. she was is kind of like a, a charming ear 
worm for me, but I not mm-hmm. not that big on the album. That's I mean I would pipe in and say just like I I really like a, a number of songs on here, so maybe I would like this one the most out of us. Uh, I do love uh, and she was, but it is of course a d- definitely more populist, you know, one get lots of radio play and stuff. But even something like uh, I, I said when we were watching is that I would I would totally karaoke to uh, Creatures of Love. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's I, think, I think Lady Don't Mind is fine as well. Uh, it's good. Yeah, uh, and stuff. Yeah, it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Um, it's not what I want exactly. Um, after that, yeah. I have. Uh, after that, I have naked. I don't. I don't know how you all feel about it, but Same I feel like it, it. It also blows up the premise of their multi-layering as a band. And I think I've spent the least time with it, but um, nothing but flowers. I, I've maybe spent more time with than a lot of songs that that would show up on my mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have naked as well. Uh, I think it's more creative. Then uh, it's like a la- like sort of like this last push sort of uh, to to make something uh, where you no know, the the songs are pretty different. Uh, it's got a lot of variety here, and I think there is sort of this uh, yeah sort of this last push for creativity, which you know quite a few songs being like uh, uh, you know I would say yeah interesting. Like uh, I've I've I I can give this an occasional an occasional listen, and uh, I think there is sort of. If anything, it is sort of a bit underappreciated in my mind because I haven't listened to it enough yet. Uh, and, but but yeah, it's certainly much. There's certainly much more there, I think, um, than well, um, little creatures. I, I think I, think... I would generally agree with that. I, I don't have a whole lot to say on it, so I'm just kind of like, good. You know, not nothing stands out. So thanks, David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think we have less than a minute here, so let's uh, close up the meeting. Come back. Uh, let's see if we have the same exact list. Uh, that would be interesting and maybe not worth doing this if we did if we end up having exactly the same thoughts. Uh, let's uh, close up and come right back. Welcome back to Lubing with Lubich. <laughs> no, this is the Talking Heads podcast. Lubich is next more week. Songs about buildings and loop. <laughs> <laughs> more songs about Lubich and loop. Uh, right. Where, where yeah, were so we? Uh, we're in the middle of the your guys's ranking and my color commentary. <laughs> and so far, we have the same exact ranking, which I think we'll probably split probably around this That'll change, one. Yes, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I see. I think so. Uh, so we did, um, I said true stories, and then kind of little creatures we agreed on, naked we agreed on, and now comes the, you know, now comes the uh, widely regarded as the sort of core talking yeah, the heads era. Of talking heads, I believe. For um, the first five albums, yeah, and yeah, the first five albums. All right. So you want to go with your next one? Yes, if you like me to, I can do that because it's a it's my hot take. <laughs> okay. Oh, we'll for me, bring back remain, hot take minute. <laughs> remain in light is uh, is quote unquote at the bottom. It's a great album, but it's at the bottom for me out of these uh, main canonical ones. Of, yeah, the Talking Heads five, if you will. Uh, yeah, it's a for me. It was always this awkward middle point between uh, Fear of Music and and and. Um, and speaking in tongues, where uh, you know it's it is obviously regarded as, as very influential, 
and like the seminal piece of work, etc. But I don't know. I feel like it's 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 a it's a kind of for me it's more of like a transitional album between sort of fear of music, which already introduces a lot of the elements that yes. are quoted in, as an innovative uh, about Rain and Night, and then in a way, sort of yes, it ramps it up, but then I think um, speaking in tongues maintains that level and just does better things with it. Uh, just like yes. the tracks there better. Uh, so uh, I'll say that. Um, I'll just say that, uh, um, God, I'm, I'm blanking now. Um, obviously, the uh, should have had, uh, I know the track's obviously by heart, but I should have had the, the track list open still. But um, I'll say that, uh, yeah, the um, Cross-Eyed and Painless is one of my favorite Talking It songs, period. That's mm -hmm. the top three song for me. Um, and, you know, our stuff is a bit, it's obviously like like once in a lifetime or whatever. It's just... Yeah, it's fine. It's it's good. It's fine. It's good, but even. But um, it's not as overplayed for me as it is for you guys. But um, well, you know, I should say once again, we we match on on our on our oh, ranking. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> we, we might have the exact same list here. Uh, talk about twin geeks. Uh, there's a, I think. So what I what I've written is that while it's overvalued by the math masses, um, I think it I think it also has what makes Talking Heads work at the most fundamental level. With like a, yeah. these polyrhythmic songs that stretch across some cultures in artful ways. Um, Born Under Punches, really valuable opener. Uh, going into Cross-Eyed and Painless, that's a one-two punch that's very valuable, I think, at the start of an album. Maybe uh, totally. their best uh, opening two songs. Uh, they have uh, some other significant openers that we get to, but yeah, those are maybe, important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Once in a Lifetime, Not I've heard it so much on the radio, I don't care. It's uh, same as it yeah. ever was. It's, it's the Maybe same if song. the lyrics weren't so repetitive, then yeah. we might feel differently. But yeah, there there is definitely a kind of you know over. And this Kermit version. Yeah. <laughs> there's a the Kermit version as well. I think so. you look at it like as the music video, right? Like it, it represents iconography and talking heads to the masses in a way. <clears throat> it's I don't know for for me, Once in a Lifetime is still such a kind of iconic and signature song that I can't dislike it, even if it does not. Get overdone. I like it. Uh, at least over here, I like it a lot. Yeah, well, um, I like it. I guess the other one, only other one of note for me here is the overload, which I think it's undervalued as a deconstructive, mm -hmm. like centerpiece of this album. Which says, mm -hmm. I think, what the album actually means. the The lyrics are really great. Um, I, I love his writing there. A view to remember the the center is missing. They question how the future lies in someone's mm -hmm. eyes. I mean, it's it's good poetry and it, it sounds good. A uh, heavier song yeah. too. Right. Um, so with that, I mean, apparently no luck on this show with hot takes either. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> probably, probably, the segment too. probably for the best that you discarded it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so next for me is uh, Fear of Music. That is okay. uh, my number that, four. We do have differences now. Oh, there we go, um, yeah. at, at number uh, four, I have 77. Mm -hmm. um, I, I almost expected that. I okay. definitely have the early albums probably higher than many people. Um, but I mean, Fear of Music, obviously a great album. And, and I would say another difference there between Fear of Music and Remain Light is I would say the song length. Um, you know, Remain Light sort of introduced that format that then also speaking tongues did with like fewer songs, but you know, longer, having them just sort of go on and really letting sort of the music um, just run for a while. And that's great. Uh, but sure. um, Fear of Music, much more about these compact statements um, and just very also very experimental um 
you know, Isenbra obviously often quoted as like the first, like the, this, the first one to import like this, this world music um, aspect. And yeah. uh, I mean, Cities is a tops uh, talking head song for me. That's one of that's that's one of the songs that totally encapsulates them. Uh, I'm only get me, to, I really love. I guess I'll get to mine once it comes up further in the countdown. My thoughts on that. Um, yeah. What's your for, so you're from before? Yeah. Yeah. So for four, I had their debut at '77, uh, mm -hmm. pioneering and essential. I think. Um, uh oh, loves come comes to town is a lot of fun. Uh, Psycho Killer, mm -hmm. of course, is like my first entry into Talking Heads, and it's such a funny and. Uh, emblematic song of how they're going to take a punkish break from what's popular in music culture and add a funk layer um, with its bass yeah. grooves. Um, and, and there's yeah. songs about government and buildings already, which is just talking heads. Totally. It's true. <laughs> what do you have at three? Oh, David, does David want to say anything? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I uh, I might be lower on both of those than, than you guys are compared okay. to, to some of the other okay. ones, but obviously like the, the mm -hmm. highlights of each are are significant and um you know i i love the the songs that that each have and, and bring to their uh oeuvre uh, i want to also recommend real quick while i while i'm on fear of music in my ranking i want to recommend the book by jonathan lethem which uh who wrote i think this is a series of books uh it's um by uh you know bloomsbury published but it's like a they have a series of books on where just various like authors and um, mm -hmm. i write uh, you know do like essays on on an album you know do like yeah. on every on every track and he he did one um on uh, on fear of music and uh, i think 33 and a third is the is the series called 33 and a third um and yeah just a, just wanted to throw that in there as a recommendation um but uh, next up for me is 77 uh, okay. so that's uh yeah that's that's on three for me um, i'm gonna i'm gonna side pavlos in the rankings here i'm gonna put okay. your music lower and then here so you better wow mm -hmm. me with your next couple calvin otherwise we need, we need to know where david is on remain on light in light also we, we oh yeah i guess we, we skipped over that uh I, I think i generally agree as well um although you know okay. uh, it, it does have its uh major highlights uh i agree that i like these these other ones and what they offer a, a little more mm -hmm. my third um, my third will be um more songs on buildings and food uh which for me like where the heads really found their alignment between the punk mm -hmm. and funk and where the <laughs> brian anno influence really demarcated something like highly produced and accessible to their vision uh, i think it has so much more bernie and social commentary than uh some of the ones i've ranked lower uh odd one where a few songs really stand out to me is like truly this is talking heads um and mm -hmm. uh found a job aside uh which is a very functional album piece i think um right uh yeah right i'd say i mean I, I know it's already you know and it already arrived here but um yeah. you can't feel the influence or is that much yet but it that is i mean i will talk about more songs about building food in, in a minute but okay. uh um just for 77 i just wanted to say um that I really love for this. For, uh, I really love a general statement on these early albums. I really love just the, you know, the harmonies and the solo, like the solos that you get from the from the from the guitars and the bass and and oh, yeah. um, it's it's just the in a way I would say that seventy seven or in a way it can differentiate with Talking Heads like albums with like the standouts and then filler and the albums where it's like really a very uh, consistent. Um, um, quality 
and we'll get to that maybe in a bit more uh, in a bit. But I would say a seventy-seven is um, has those standout. Um, yeah, it does. Those standout tracks. I really love the book I read. Um, I really love uh, No Compassion. I think those are also. I think No Compassion is a another defining song for uh, a lot of like uh, the early Talking Heads. Um, persona like the personas that he that the burn sort of assumed with uh, with his lyrics which is like mm. sort of this very like new economy um sort of big city guy i don't know if uh, if you could say yuppie as well i'm not sure quite sure maybe that's uh, defined wrong in my mind but anyway like this sort of like like for for psychicular obviously something like american psycho also comes to mind right mm. and i think that sort of type actually pervades a lot of different songs uh from talking yeah. it's that sort of uh, sociopathic, um, uh, very like capitalist, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, selfish um, personality. And I think No Compassion is a great, great one to, to for that. And there's also Love Equals Building on Fire. That's yeah, it's neat. Um, fantastic uh, for me. I really love that one. Again, so, once we're this high, it's an, it's an album full of things I always like. Totally. Because we're this high yeah. with my favorite band. Um, Absolutely. So I, I'd say once we got to the parts where our lists start converging, I think it's all albums I like in any case. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, what's interesting now, we both have the same top two, but maybe different order. We don't know yet. Uh, wait, what is your, th your three was? More, no, no, we, more don't, songs? we don't. We don't. We don't, yeah, have we, a, don't. we don't have the same top two. Um, we don't. For yeah. sure we don't. Uh, so um... <laughs> I guess I well, should go with mine first because we've already sure, covered ahead. mine. Uh, yeah, mine yeah. is Fear of Music in number two, which mm -hmm. for me is the Head's most like African polyrhythmic album, which takes on uh, I Zimbra as like a game changing opening statement for the history of like alternative and punk rock. Uh, and mm. you start hearing those rhythms incorporated all across the spectrum of rock after this. And Life During Wartime is such a solid jam as well. But mm. I feel like I Zimbra is my third favorite of Talking Head songs. Um, animals and, also really cool song oh yeah animals great and uh it really shows like the height of like burns ingenuity and like how he layered cultural influences in different ways and this is my favorite in that sense mm -hmm. uh david do you have any uh wait you always said your piece about fear uh, yeah, music, I, right? I, yeah, yeah i commented on fear music earlier yeah yeah all right our top two is here um I mean, for me, it's, I'll say the two and then the one is obvious. Yeah, It's very close and they represent different things, but uh, I went with speaking tongues in two. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> yeah. surprising it's, move. It's, it's so close and it's, it's just so different. I mean, on a different day, you could switch them around. But And more songs about building and food. So I just comment on both here together. Mm. Uh, speaking in tongues, I think the best representation of that post-NO uh, talking heads. So many jams, even... Um, something like, um, I mean, in, in some of the, like the first half, it's, it's very front loaded. I'll, I'll admit that. But then at the end, obviously you get that, that, uh, you know, amazing, um, um, this must be the place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, your real hot take was speaking in tongues in second place, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> there's I, some, I unfortunately there's some filler, uh, in the second half. Although again, yeah. I would, I would like to, I would like to highlight, um, um, Besides, um, besides this must be the place. Uh, I, I will also uh, sort of give give a nod here to. Um, um, I'll have it 
in a sec. Um, uh, pull up the roots, which also okay. uh, enjoy quite a bit. But I think you know, I get well, swamp moon rocks. Eh, bit of a weak stretch. They're fine. They're good. They're good. But yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it, I mean, this is really minuscule. Those first four tracks, though, they really like you know lay the groundwork for this you know pretty incredible oh. run in it there. And then again, like you said, even if they dip a little bit, like coming back around mm -hmm. with this, you almost have to right. Like you yeah. have to dip to to keep the album from falling apart at some well, level. And and again to, to come way, back around yeah. and, and end with that, that song, which if you ask me is the best Talking Heads song, or at least my favorite. Um, of course. You know, totally, totally fair. So it's Take. pretty obvious that that is my number one, given it's the only one I didn't talk about, right? But uh, that yeah. I, I believe it has two of the greatest songs ever recorded. Girlfriend is better, and this must be the place. Uh, mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. both have. There's such a diverse range of everything. I think the band represents. Um, I think every part from all the other albums could be found within this one. I think making flippy floppy <laughs> girlfriend is better. <laughs> Slippery people is an amazing run of songs too. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just I love speaking in tongues, and, and that's where I really connected with Talking Heads. And and like David says, I think it's the perfect album ender. I I've never heard a better ending song than this must be a place because well, a it's my favorite song by anyone, and and b and I I just think it it's a perfect way to go out. It is this dreamy serenity mm -hmm. to it that's you know kind of unmatched by anything else. It always puts me in such a, a, a jovial place, and it's an interesting contrast with the beginning of the album with something is kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. intense with uh, yeah. burning down the house. Right. It's it's a bit like uh, it reminds me a bit in that in that curve. It reminds me a bit of um, L.A. Woman. Mm -hmm. um, by the doors, the doors yeah. which also obviously totally. ends on, uh, yeah, um, and it's on a somber sort of more, more melancholy or like very atmospheric um, song, and um, uh, yeah, it's I mean it's the first four tracks of course are complete jams, although burning down the house I will sometimes skip because uh, maybe that uh, really yeah. I, I agree that you know it's not my favorite to listen to anymore. Not because it's a bad song. I think it is a great song, but it it can mm -hmm. be a little yeah. repetitive, particularly with the way it's repeated so much in in culture. It gets a little like, you know, a uh, uh, little tough to to listen to and put back on again. I can totally yeah. understand skipping it. You know, when you put on the the album. <laughs> I think it's one of the one one of the ones that benefits most from "Stop Making Sense" because I'm so tired of it that it really requires that new context for me to even engage mm -hmm. with what it's saying anymore um burning down the house uh, i remember first time putting on stopping making sense and ezra dancing around to it uh, so uh, mm -hmm. warm memories nice um i mean for me number one of course means that, that number one is more songs about buildings and food yeah. which um i i again have such a soft but soft spot for those earlier albums and uh for me more songs about building food i think it really edges it out i could it's already I'm unsure uh, about uh, having it on top, but I think I want to say that it's the opposite thing of a, like a very consistent quality to the whole thing. Oh, it works as an can... album so much better, I think. I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly right. I think as an album, it's so consistent. The topics of like the songs thematically and motivically, it, it all it just it's all it's so uh cohesive all of it and there's such a high consistent quality to it that i think as an album right uh it 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 just puts it on top slightly uh and you know it's obviously also more tracks there a bit more more to listen to um it's a different type of album totally totally different type of album um yeah. but 
for me, slight edge to, edge to that with, you know, I'm not a, not a big fan of how it ends with like the thing of the river, the big country. Sort of the part I like the most. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. For me, it's the weaker ending there, but with the bonus tracks of the reissues, you get like alternate versions of uh, stay hungry and not in love and stuff. And you kind of get a, yeah yeah you get back up you get yeah i agree it works better with the the additions on the deluxe or whatever it's i think talking about the the end there with uh take me to the river is a good transition back to stop making sense as well because uh that choice in in the uh concert is is such a pivotal moment of the film and it really Mm -hmm. like i think brings like that influence in that they were trying to go for with the gospel sense to an even greater level and that's where the film really like you know breaks it down they do like the the band introductions and stuff as you're kind of coming up to the end of the show and you get that feel that they i think they intended with it in the recording even more so on the stage absolutely uh so we we found out a lot uh today um we're keeping the website together uh, much like Lynch is doing his weather forecast, it was a beautiful show. Thank you guys. Yeah, this was. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's always a great pleasure. Such a blast! I can't wait till we get together again. And this was a, a great and lengthy discussion that I hope uh, everyone listening out there will enjoy. And we found out we all love the Doors, so we have to do that discography yep. next. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> true. True. That's next. We'll we'll tackle yeah. the the Val Kilmer film, and then we'll rank our our, our Doors albums as well. Well, amazing show, David. You want to take us out? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take us out of here. Uh, thank you, everyone, as always, for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydreamcast, with uh, Pablo Sears-Eard and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Wow. That was professional. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye.